2: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. People
3: of attention. Calling to our city, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm mooning, to be found. And I'm building
4: rockets. I'm them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 474. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now, <laughs> have we got a show today? Tell you what's coming up. First up is our very own Jeremy Sal has an interview with Colin Gibson, who is, get this, an Oscar-winning production designer on Mad Max Fury Road. Yes, that's coming up straight away. Then we've got the main fiction, which is Nano America by David John Baker. Then, at the end, it is at end of the month, Mr. J.J. Campanella with his Science News. That's all coming in dear. show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So I want to get straight into this. It's it's a big old show there, and I want to get straight into this because this interview is just you know what I mean. Normally I kinda of let I said, you know, I put the reins on Jeremy. I said, Jeremy, keep it under a certain time. But it was just, you know what I mean, we just had to let this one roll because it's a fascinating interview. Just you know, how often do you get to talk to someone on, you know, an Oscar winning designer you know, and on Mad Max as well. Do you know what I mean? How cool
0: is that? So this is Jeremy talking to Colin Gibson. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Starship sorry for his interviews. I'm Jeremy Zarl and today I am bringing you an interview that I'm absolutely over the moon to share with you guys. I had the opportunity to speak with Colin Gibson and you may not be familiar with his name but you should be be familiar with his work. He was the head production designer on Mad Max Fury Road, the most accurate and sharpest portrayal of Australia in a documentary ever created. And this man built the sets, the cars, the weapons, the design and aesthetic of the film. This man essentially built Mad Max Fury Road. And he won an Oscar for his work. And he won an Oscar for this work in the same year that The Danish Girl, The Bridge of Spies, The Revenant and Ridley Scott's The Martian were all up for grabs. And I was able to meet Colin Gibson a number of times outside of my work for Starship Sofa. And he is an absolute blast to talk to. And in this interview, we talk about what it was like to work with George Miller. I would eyeball on this film, how he designed an entire world from scratch, how he fit in world building and character development and story background into the cars and weapons and characters, how he managed to both steal his kid's trampoline and stitch it to the cars. And also more about the Volvolini, Turkey basters, and a bunch of psychopathic women who you really don't want to meet. All this and more in this interview. It was an absolute pleasure to do this, and I hope you guys enjoy it just as much as I did making it. All right, Colin Gibson, thank you so much for coming on to Starship over to talk with us today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to be had. Thank you. And so, first I just wanted to ask, when you were starting the design on Fury Road, is it true that director George Miller said if you didn't make the cast cool, he'd kill you?
1: Uh, Yes, that was uh, rule number five, I think, was uh, make sure it's cool. He was unsure. I I don't look very Jewish and he wasn't sure if I understood the meaning of the word zeitgeist, (laughs) let alone cool.
0: So what was rule number one if that was rule number five?
1: Oh, well, basically the story runs uh, rule number two. George had five rules. Rule number two was uh, avoid anything ever done before, especially by him. Rule number three was avoid anything unsupported by internal logic, you know, laws of physics, known geo and socio-political likelihoods. Rule number four was no rust. Uh, Rule number five, make sure it looks cool. Rule number one, as every designer will tell you who works on films, is that rules two through five don't apply to the director.
0: Okay. You also mentioned in an interview a while back that all the vehicles had to have a internal logic, and how did you balance that with the design and making the cars look cool?
1: Oh uh, well, that was that's basically almost every design job, whether it's for you know post-apocalypse or a period, is you're always working to the twin. The twin strands, the uh, the DNA of, of creativity. So one of them is the logic of the world you're inventing and the other is the logic forced on you by the story, the script, the director, the exigencies of how much money you've got and how much time, blah, blah, blah. So you're always balancing those two. The first thing you try to do is to design the design process that best suits whichever story you're working on now. And obviously this was a this was a tale set in a world where people were cobbling together a new, slightly hectic, uh, hectic world out of the uh, entropic leftovers of the fall, the civilization that had come before. So, you know, we came up with uh, we came up with a, a new aesthetic to work uh, to work with what we had, and there were, uh, I mean, there were 1, 15, 1600 storyboards, but no script. But those boards, though they didn't have much in the way of design for what the vehicles looked like, they did have a. They did tell you a lot about how many people needed to be on that vehicle, uh, what speed it had to be, whether it was a left or a right-hand drive, how high it was in relation to other vehicles, how long it had to survive and last. So there's a lot of parameters already worked into the story, and uh, my real job was to flesh out a world, come up with a new aesthetic, you know, so we, we really just sort of wrote a new aesthetic and a new Bible for, uh, for what that world might be, and its varying tribes.
0: All right, awesome, and so when you first came onto the project, there were only storyboards, and so you got the chance to write some of the plot points and characters um, you said in an interview, so how much of that actually ended up in the final film?
1: Well, not so much write some of the plot points and character, although obviously everything you design changes slightly the shape of, you know, if we build the world, then the pinball is going to go a slightly different way that it might have. But uh, you're always trying to make it suit the storyline that George had already laid out. It was just that he'd laid it out completely in uh, storyboard rather than in words. Uh, so i guess I guess everything that we did everything that the you know somebody comes up with a great piece of uh, costume or weaponry or something then that's going to change slightly the arc of what's of what a character or a character might do
0: <laughs> and in regards to character arcs and because you told me that you worked on the world building a little bit. And since Fury Road is such an action-driven forward narrative, how did you possibly manage to like, condense world building and background and, uh, and character background like into the design of the weapons and the sets and the cars?
1: Well, if you have a look at all the, all the Mad Max stories, really are, are stories. And they're almost always told from a future perspective looking back. So this was no different. Fury Road was indeed. We're looking at it in a theoretical, real-time, linear, action-paced story. But that story is being retold to us. Uh, so there was originally a character uh, who doesn't really appear in the in the film now, called the History Man. And the History Man was was trying to salvage the story of civilization. Of what had happened, of what the fall consisted of, and uh, George's very first couple of conversations with me were about were about being that history man in the future and looking back and telling the tale of this uh, of this almost myth, this legend of uh, of a particular time between the fall and the rebirth. So I guess if you're writing the, if you get the chance to write the Bible, uh, to try to give a feel, a texture, a history, it's a bit like sort of being a, a, an imaginary Margaret Mead. I got to be the me and Mead and sort of uh, help, help uh, formalise and flesh out where each of the tribes were, where they came from, Basically, you know, if, they're, uh, if they've got these sort of uh, lands, spaces, entitlements, what started out as, okay, you own the bullets, you own the fuel, you own the, the water and food. How does that uh, translate to a political reaction? But also, how does it translate? How did you get to that position? What sort of character or tribe do you become? Uh, you know, so the bullet farm we, uh, we imagined... As the last great infantry stand, and uh, so they were, they were rednecks, they were plowboys, they were. They invented vehicles that could plough up the uh, the Somme and Passchendaele from some future uh, right. infantry nightmare, because out of corpse and out of cartridge, out of the detritus of that uh, of those fields and those farms. Uh, you could uh, rebuild a new armaments factory out of the uh, burning derricks of the uh, of the left leftover gas fields. Comes Gastown, and the derricks give you a uh, you know give you a, a, an idea of uh, of a derrick and a, a rig mentality. Fly in, but no flying out. Too many men. A lot of fuel the weapons become therefore fuel based or uh, you know flamethrowers and uh, they're out on the flats so they they need something that's going to give them heightened viewpoint a crow's nest and so the polecat is born and we have a high a high viewpoint character who then uses that viewpoint also as an attacking mechanism so everything feeds into everything else and the real point of world building is uh is really just to to study it, whether it be through uh footnote or imagination exactly where a particular line will take you in
0: any direction you guys seem to have pretty much fleshed out like the entire world mad max universe as it as it is and one of the key elements of world building is that to have the entire backstory in your head, but only the tip of the iceberg is ultimately going to show in the final product. And because the rest of it's in rest of it's in the background, it's in the creators' heads. So, how much of that, like you talk all the stuff that you talked about, um, a, the vast majority of that isn't actually obvious on the surface. So, like, was it almost like frustrating to have so much of the detail and backstory and all that? cut to make way for having a much faster paced film
1: no not at all I mean uh, it, it didn't matter whether it was a whether it was a 10 minute uh, a 10 minute short feature or uh, 90 minutes that it became or the two and a half hours uh, at one stage George could have made it um, it's it's basically you still need all of that depth and all of that detail and it was even more important I mean we're, we're trying to tell a story at 100 kilometres an hour. So uh, if you're only getting to meet a character 14 seconds before their vehicle Catherine wheels through the desert and uh, lights up up an otherwise uh, azure blue sky with yellow and orange flame, then you want to pack in as much backstory. Uh, You want to know who they were, how they lived, what their place was in the society, all within those few brief seconds. And... uh, you know you still need to know that to be able to make that real and i guess that's the real gag that you're trying to do you want to give everything that internal logic that does make it real you don't want to invent you know a world where physics doesn't exist unless you can come
0: up with a really good uh, new physics to replace it Actually, I just asked you, you said in an interview, like speaking of explosions, you said in an interview that you started out hating CGI, but eventually uh, George Miller actually converted you over. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think I said I hated CGI. Part of, uh, part of the reason for doing this uh, film at the time was a desire to, uh, I mean, in a way, it, we, we thought we were making the last great action movie, you know, the last movie where where there was real stunts, the the fear I have of CGI is that if you can pull anything out of a hat, nobody's excited anymore. Used to be, you know, you pull a rabbit out of a hat, you get very excited, it's fantastic. But now, you know, you can pull anything out of a hat because of CGI, and people people don't get that same uh, excitement, that same uh, that same free song. There is no magic left. You know, you've got to nowadays you've got to pull. I guess you've got to pull the hat out of a rabbit to make it vaguely interesting. So we wanted to make a film that uh, that didn't depend on that, and that didn't start with CGI. I have a bit of a pet hate for uh, you know a lot of the the non-physics of Fast and Furious, you know where cars can drive sideways for uh, three or four hundred meters, or where they can drag a six-ton weight around corners with uh, with you know with no inertia. Basically, if if you can do things that can't be done, then there's nothing at stake. There's nothing in the kitty. And uh, it's just like a, a little bit too much, like too much gaming that uh, you know, you, you, you can die a million times, but you have no understanding of mortality. And uh, that's why I had a bit of a set against. So we, we planned always to do our level headed best to make everything as real as possible or to make everything as plausible and possible But uh, George did indeed um, show me the finesse that good CG can do. Uh, You know, we could put cameras in positions on vehicles, got to the stage where, you know, I can design a, a vehicle that can have three hidden camera ports, but come the day and we decide to attack from the other side or the sun's going down over here and they decide to whack on another five cameras so that we've got you know, another five cuts of what happens in that in that action. Then it's another five pieces of actual court physics, and you use CG to eliminate the camera itself to back you out of that corner. So, look, I think uh, I think I've just discovered that uh, that uh, what was my fundamentalist problem uh, it was only because I I wasn't clever enough to see how to use it properly.
0: Yeah it was a relief to watch a film where it felt genuine you saw the explosions and the cars flipping and smashing into each other and it felt like you were actually seeing it play out as opposed to just being you know computer-aided pixels like just blurring about on screen like it felt genuine and I just want to ask like did it like make your job harder though just being not being able to use as much CGI because the one thing that was Fury Road was acclaimed for was for its like realistic Stunts and explosions, like did it make your job harder how, without the benefit of falling back on cGI
1: No, I actually think it made it easier because part of the design process then meant that uh, we had to des- we decided all of the vehicles were were characters you know as as in character cars, and they all had to have a backstory. they were all built and cobbled together by the war boys in the purpose of war but with a longing for a sort of misremembered past and uh, and that natural human yearning for something beautiful uh, to fill the void. And uh, that meant that coupled with the desire to make them capable of doing their own stunts meant that we had to design, you know, okay, this vehicle, It's uh, which car will we use for this particular arc? Because they're all drawn pretty much the same in the boards. But this one, well... What does it do? It tracks along next to the Fractionator, the People Eater's uh, fuel factory truck. It's there all the time. So, you know, we give that uh, that vehicle a look, and that look is, uh, is out of love. So uh, just like the bald, fat head of the People Eater, we decide we're going to use a Volkswagen. The Volkswagen, you know, was originally called, what was it, KFD... Uh, Strength through joy, Kraft something uh when it was invented, uh, when they were working on it for Hitler. And so obviously KFD in a misremembered past can be uh, FKT, which is everybody's shorthand for fucked. So we have a perfect name for a perfect vehicle for something that's in love with the people eater, half in love with easeful death, looks bald, is uh, stripped back and shiny, from Gastown, uses flamethrowers because it's from Gastown. Uh, tracks along with it like a remora to the fractionator's shark. Uh, and so all of these, all of these elements and ideas all track together. And then you decide, okay, well its final stunt George wants it to, you know, shoot through the air and Catherine wheel or somersault to its doom as it's wiped out of the way by the uh, war rig. So you get to design that into it. So suddenly, okay, it is going to be a Volkswagen. It is going to be off-road, though, so I need to raise it up. We need to design it so it can be off-road. We need it to design it so it can keep up with this, uh, with this very large truck. And uh, it needs to be able to do at least 100 kilometers an hour so that it can hit a ramp. To give us enough air to get that somersault, so uh, you know then it's going to be a V8. It's going to be getting a certain look, a certain filter, a certain you know, and then we we move to Africa in the desert and needs an additional radiator, and then George has another beat where someone else has to die, so we need to give it another seat. I mean, all of these things you build, you build in, and one storyline leads to another, and they all they all feed each other until there's one huge, enmeshed, real world because everything's trying to do what it needs to do. So by making the vehicles hopefully being available, being uh, capable of doing their own stunts, of living out their own arcs, then, uh, then uh, you know, you, you've basically you've, you've built the whole package. You don't have to have the CG guys go away, build a 3D version of it so that they can then manipulate it. Uh, occasionally, they still went away and did that, so that they could re-own something or uh, rematch and repatch. And again, as I said, that was just me uh, discovering I just had to uh, make room for another crayon in the box.
0: Going back to what you said a little earlier, how everything just seemed seemed to tie together with the world building. Going a little bit back to that, did you find that as you were designing it? that the cars and the sets and all that influenced where it seemed to be like a product of the world or the world seemed to be a product of the of the cars the sets and the weapons like did you which way did you work
1: uh well again nothing really works in a linear fashion that way you uh you're you're building something out of a whole world uh of possibilities and then you You take out some of those possibilities. There are no more factories. Suddenly there aren't two of everything. There's only one, so you've got to use, uh, you know, you've got to use one thing once. You know, we were lucky that uh, the general idea of Max and its look was a sort of hot rod and 70s aesthetic. Now, why would you go back to that when you know that, you know, where it's now... 2015 and really the uh, you know the world ended next Wednesday. Therefore, I need to uh, to work with what there was. But fortunately, uh, you know, natural causes, natural rules. Uh, heavy steel of older vehicles is far more amenable to uh, rebeating, re-panel beating, restructuring, using again. Uh, Computerised vehicles of today are almost useless. Once the computers have gone and you can't uh, you can't fix them anymore that way. So if it couldn't be fixed with a stick or a bit of chewing gum or a pair of paddy hose, then uh, it wasn't that good. So we got rid of a lot of the digital and futuristic, uh, you know, modern vehicles. And then what I couldn't get by, I couldn't get rid of that way, I managed my trump card, was that even in a apocalyptic future, you are still only going to, you know, go to the trouble of salvaging something that's beautiful enough to salvage, that's mm-hmm. worth keeping. So I don't know whether it's just me, but, uh, you know, the chrome fins off a Cadillac Coupe de Ville are a wee bit more exciting and worth schlepping back across the desert to weld onto something than, uh, than your mum's hammering
0: if it's cool just throw it in if like if it it doesn't matter if it works doesn't matter if it makes sense if it's cool if it looks cool then just throw it in
1: yeah but if you keep doing that then you'll end up with uh with something that's a whole pile of uh that's a whole pile of kitsch nonsense that uh that might look cute for uh for a week and a half but you know we'll be pissed on by whatever the next flavor of hipsters is uh come uh, come easter
0: and hipsters are not known for their predictability. All right. So how set in stone was George's vision for this film, or did it change over the years? Because this film took, what, 15 years to make. How much of it was cemented by the time you came on board?
1: To the best of my knowledge, I think in 1998, George and Brendan McCarthy uh, had the idea of making this film. Brendan McCarthy, I don't know if your uh, listeners know, is a uh, fabulous graphic artist, uh, uh, comic book guy, graphic novelist, fantastic in that way, you know, in the way of fantasy. And he and George got together, uh, Brendan loved uh, Mad Max, so he and George got together and with Peter Pound originally and then Mark Sexton storyboarded uh, the whole show, basically just started inventing it by drawing the boards. You know, what's your opening shot? What do you go, what happens next? But like everything, uh, yes, uh, I think uh, George and PJ, his first AD will be the first to say that that, that story, the basic storyline was, uh, was as though it had come concrete in a dream and delivered. And yet uh, many things still change, obviously, as you build a wall, a world that's responding to entropy and physics, then 15 years of development Physics, entropy, studios, uh, money spent and money no longer uh, remaining, and ideas that have now come to you and changed uh, are all added and embroidered. You know, the, the warp and weft of history goes into it. The Bayou Tapestry took a long time to weave and there's bits of the story that, uh, that didn't exist even when they started uh, weaving the first minstrel on the left-hand corner. So ours is much the same. You, you know, everything is... Uh, there's a very concrete, very strong through-line that George had for the idea, the, you know, the, the premise that the film was really about. Only through love can the world be healed, and I think that, uh, that you start with that, and that never changes... But uh, the elements you move around, the colours you, uh, you colour in, the textures you get to work with, all vary as the world and you change.
0: All right, sounds pretty good. Um, is there anything, as, as far as your contribution goes, was there anything that you wanted to bring to the film that just didn't fit with George's vision?
1: Uh, no, we had, we had disagreements occasionally about you know, about just different ways of looking at what had happened to the world and what would happen, sometimes, uh, sometimes I very rarely I won, and uh, usually George did. Um, but no, things changed. Uh, you know, there were there were little things. You know, in the original storyline that uh, that I didn't uh, that I didn't think worked. That took a while to dislodge, but then you know we came up with a with a better with a better metaphor for uh, For things, and i was glad uh, I was glad we got to do that and occasionally you know i I would design i sort of you know the Bible meant that I devised a sort of a, a background anthropology for all the the varying towns and tribes but uh, George did tell George said to me he reserved judgment, and if he decided that uh, he wanted to move one of the vehicles that I had said was from X. Over to why because uh, why because it was cooler over there and it was my favorite and I wanted to use it, then uh, he reserved uh, the right to do so and did so in a way that sort of helped break up what might have been uh, maybe uh, too fascist a design principle that I would may have foisted on it, so always be prepared to uh, knock something a little to one side and see how that affects where you are and I think if everything can is available. Just to be just to be moved by a new and better thought, then uh, you're always going to come up with a new and better
0: end product. Right, excellent. And I I need to ask this because, it's impossible not to. Who came up with something like the Dufouria, and how did you design something like so insane?
1: Well, the Doof Warrior, I have to say, the, the Doof was, uh, he was there from the very beginning. There was there, there was a man standing on a truck. It was a very different-looking vehicle. And he was, uh, you know, I think in, uh, in Brendan's original drawing, a, a lot of Brendan's stuff was fantastic, but uh, as I said, in that meaning of the word, fantastic. So it was a little too fabulous for a world that needed an internal logic, for a yeah. world of entropy where... You know where there wasn't much of anything some of the fabulous ideas which were fantastic in look or were great like uh you know six semi-trailers hauling a 747 welded to a train to something else across the desert is a great graphic image but doesn't make sense of a world where uh feeders of the essence where there isn't much of anything and where there's three-fifths of fuck all fuel so it's unlikely you're going to do such a thing but there was a version of 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 the doof warrior right from the word go well before i came in we just basically formularized him added he needed to have a weapon george needed to weaponize him so uh, we weaponized his guitar and turned it into a flamethrower to give him a, a little extra work george reformalized him blind and masked, and that sort of blindness became part of the character as well. And then it was how we slung him on the vehicle really had to do with the fact that we spent all of our time off-road and I needed a spider web of bungee cords and things to, uh, to hang him over a stage. And then everything else was just a choice based on, well, if the vehicle is a huge drum, he's the drummer boy of this enormous infantry heading out across the desert and they're all V8s then I need something really loud and so suddenly it all became resonators and, uh, and drums so we chose you know this, uh, these materials and things and then added drummers to the back so it basically it developed but Coma himself the Doof Warrior he grew almost uh, immediate from uh, Brendan and George's imagination.
0: When you're working with a film like Mad Max, I don't think you can go wrong by saying, let's just make everything louder, more colourful, and more bloodier. Like, And clearly you guys didn't think so either, because I don't know any other film that's had a guitar that attached to a flamethrower. I don't think I've ever seen something like that before.
1: Well, I refer to George's rule number two. Try to... Uh, I want to. I don't want to see anything I've seen before.
0: Okay, <laughs> you, certainly, you guys certainly succeeded. Um, and in regards to guitar flamethrowers on guitars was all the design specific or did you guys just sit down together and say, you know what, let's just throw in the most outlandish punkish stuff as possible and just like whack it all together within the context of the, of the film.
1: Uh, No, it doesn't, doesn't really work. That sort of whacked in together and it didn't really work that it was, uh, that it would be preordained. So we decided the design process would match the war boys Design process that we would uh, you know we went out and collected uh, collected wrecks and uh, hot rod gags and other people's passion projects that had fallen by the wayside. It's rare to find a paddock uh, in, a, in, in a lot of Australia that doesn't have something in it that someone one day intended to turn into something. We just preempted we took some of those back and then the process was basically to sit down. With a, a mechanic and a steel worker, and what I refer to as a salvage artist, and to talk through a storyboard set of beats that's, you know, like, uh, I don't know, let's say the Barracuda. We had, a, a, you know, the plowboys I mentioned earlier, the uh, down-home farm kids who, uh, whose system was to plow up. And so their system of attack had to utilize that, so they would then become whalers. Uh, we gave them harpoons. They could shoot into a vehicle to slow it. And then to slow it again, they would drop the plows that they use back home for uh, digging up the killing fields. They're now using to slow their prey while other vehicles move in for the kill. So, you know, one of the. We'd decide, okay, what vehicles have we got? We had a beautiful Barracuda, which was a, a great old V8, and it had already had a slightly hopped up front, but this vehicle needed a harpoon to happen in the very front. So part of the deal was, okay, we need to move the engine. Will we move it to the rear? No, let's put it in the middle of the car, the least useful place, but also because we have a shot inside the car where a cable snaps back, breaks through the windscreen and takes out the driver. Well, let's intensify the jeopardy and put the V8 directly inside with the driver. That opened the front up for the Harpoonist. Then we jacked the back up to give it a V8 sort of hot look. Then we have to add the weight for the plows. Then we have to extend the diffs to uh, extend the wheels to take the weight of the plows and not lose any speed. Uh, It's a barracuda, so well, let's continue the maritime thing and give it a steering wheel made out of a boat steering wheel and let's turn the plows into anchors welded to a line. It's using a harpoon, so suddenly we have a whaler that fits uh, all my fascist need for bad puns and uh, and world-built interconnections. Alchemy is just about uh, finding as many things you can make connect as possible to justify your uh, warped view of the world. But suddenly we then put together those vehicles, and then, you know, the salvage artist goes in, okay, we're going to use a a steering wheel from a yacht and so we get one of those and then it has a skull woven to it and then the harpoon has to look more like a whaler so we use uh you know we use something welded up out of something that looks like a whaling harpoon with sections of timber and rivets uh the anchors were real anchors from boats that were then just welded to a drop anchor line uh feeder you know and it's Every, as I say, everything feeds everything else, and as long as you have the world in your head and you make it work to all of those things, then uh, it tells you what it needs to be, and it tells the audience instantly that there, is a, that there is a world order, there is a hierarchy, there is a life, there is a fetish, there is a personal view and a beating heart to everything that's there, to everything that's been salvaged, saved, and repurposed for war and remembering.
0: Yeah, I'd like to imagine that you guys basically just like broke into scrap yards and other people's backyards and other stuff and just like started in the middle of the night taking off uh, like wheels and anchors and steering wheels and like hoods and that sort of thing because i'd like to sort of feel that you get watching the film that everything literally everything in here is stolen so i'd like to imagine that you guys carry that spirit on to finding the equipment
1: yeah well fortunately we had a slightly bigger budget than stolen but uh occasionally sometimes it was you know or something would be repurposed or uh you know one of the vehicles we uh suddenly had to make it bigger and none of the bits fitted and uh and I'd been desperate to try to use a trampoline that I had in the back of my house. My kids are now too old for. So the trampoline got repurposed and became uh, stretched over seats at the springs, gave us the additional, uh, you know, 150 mil that we needed to uh, rewire boots and fenders and things back onto the vehicle. And it sort of sort of made sense for, uh, for what it was, for the springiness and the stretch So some things are stolen, some things are found, some things are uh, paid for. And as I said, some things were other people's passion projects that had never reached fulfillment because they already had, they already came with a history and a dream.
0: I'd like to imagine that that trampoline is in the film, like that trampoline is in the film somewhere in one of the cars still. You go back, you'll find it in two vehicles. All right, well, we'll take a look for it then. So we actually had a question from Michael and this ties into back what you said about working with other guys. Given Fury Road's huge crew, like people like Mark Sexton, who did an incredible job with the uh, storyboarding, how did you guys all collaborate on a film of a scale and did you guys have any major disagreements?
1: Oh, you always have major disagreements uh, with everybody. I, I remember George introducing me to Charlize Theron and saying, hello, this is Colin, he's the production designer, he and I disagree about everything, which was a slight overstatement. (laughs) But no, what it was is, you know, everyone has a slightly different viewpoint, and uh, I guess my real job was to try to, you know, to try to get as many viewpoints that followed the rules, that worked, that added to the tapestry, all to work in together as much as possible. That's really, I think that's really my my main job and uh, you know Mark Sexton and Peter Pound storyboarded so much of it. Peter Pound had come up with drawings for the War Rig and for Nux's car that, uh, that I think uh, that I think we kept to, to a huge degree that we kept uh, as the basis for what we ended up building and just took out all of the other requirements and other needs and scales and sizes and things change because of what vehicles they were going to be, what was available. But you uh, you still you know you still depend so much. Part of part of the great joy of doing any of these jobs, whether it's you know whether it's a post-apocalyptic future or it's uh, 11th century China or the 70s in Australia, and you know you, you're doing all of those on each different project. The greatest joy is uh, the fact that you get to to deal with other people's passions and through them be led to uh, to a greater understanding and and feeling for things that you you never get just for yourself you can't learn enough learn enough i can't learn enough skills or read enough books or sit on the internet uh, enough hours to actually develop all the passion the dreams the thoughts the talents that i get to tap into by working on something like fury road
0: I bet I can. Yeah, it sounds like it. I bet like people would probably give their left eye socket just to have been a fly on the room when you guys were just fighting over, pouring over the designs and fighting over the cars. It would have been pretty incredible. Um, yeah, and I
1: have a I have a drawer full of
0: left eye sockets right now. Okay. That doesn't sound creepy at all. Is that all you have, or did you have, any, or have they given you anything more for the for the juicier ones? Oh no, there's plenty of other drawers. I'm sure there are. All right, so. We have a question from Ralph. You guys built over 150 cars this film, yeah? Were you prepared uh, for the. Ex-
1: 150 vehicles that we built, but there were 88 uh, characters, oh, including cool. motorbikes. So there were. Because we built uh, doubles and triples uh, of certain things, I think it was 88 was the final, uh, final
0: one off count. All right, for for then, for 88, were you prepared for the extent of the abuse that your creations received in filming? Because these cars got absolutely thrashed on film. Like, like it's, it's insane how much abuse these things sustained.
1: We were partly prepared for it. I was, uh, I'd love to say, of course I was. They, you know, they were built for destruction and uh, designed to do what they had to do. And all of that was true. But that still didn't mean that uh, after two different units of stunt people were out in two different deserts and uh, at one o'clock in the morning we dragged back you know 14 broken cars that need to be back on set the next morning or the next afternoon and uh, you know everybody's working through the night you're trying to rebuild it going for fuck's sake it probably wasn't even caught on camera what are they doing but you know that's, uh, that's part of what they were designed to be. And fortunately, we were lucky enough to hit on a few gags, apart from doubles and triples, that, uh, that helped us, you know, that was part of you design into it. So a lot, of the, a lot of the vehicles, like the War Rig, was in nearly every scene and millions of things. I think we had a 160-page booklet originally done by the lovely and talented Jacinta Leong. Who, uh, who put together a booklet of what would happen to the war rig just through the storyboard beats we knew of, not even you know give or take small accidents, parking at the supermarket, and so those things were taken into account, and you know we developed this uh, this theory of pitch, which I actually stole from a, a Hopkins poem, pitch past pitch of grief. Uh, One of the the off-cut products of uh, making your own diesel is a sort of thick bitumen product of blackness. And so out of the, you know, how do we use it? What does it become? Well, George was anti-rust. He and I fought about that, and I managed to get a few rusty cars in eventually. But uh, because of that, we decided that we would uh, sandblast a lot of the vehicles and that a lot of the others we would cover in this... uh, black pitch, this bitumized uh, covering, which would, uh, as far as the war boys were concerned, would uh, cut down on rust, would work as sort of a post-apocalyptic bog for uh, holding things together, and uh, gave us also something that we could inscribe into with tattoo and scarification, but also meant that when the war rig comes back after a hard day at the office uh, being attacked by buzzards, we can uh, re-smear over all those gouges and bruises and brakes, which was a lot easier than uh, rebuilding new panels.
0: All right. So it sounds like your cars did get put through the shredder. Um, just a quick question uh, from Tim. If Mad Max 2 was called the Sistine Chapel of Punk, what do you think he would call Fury Road?
1: I've never heard it called the Sistine Chapel of Punk.
0: J.G. Ballard, the author of High Rise, called The Sistine Chapel of Punk, apparently.
1: Well, I'm never going to argue with someone as esteemed as J.G. Ballard, especially with his knowledge and love of uh, cars and his own uh, car crash mentality. <laughs> so now I'm going to go with Sistine Chapel of Punk. I don't know. I think it would be the other way round. I think instead of us making high art The Sistine Chapel out of, uh, out of a low art movement punk, we're maybe the other way around. Maybe we're the roller derby of
0: Leonardo. All right, that sounds good enough. There's also been, I found this random page, don't ask me how I found it, Was where someone said that you still have the tattoo machine that was used on Tom Hardy's back. Do you still have that?
1: Uh, I don't personally have it, but I'd love to know who has got it. I know uh, I know the man, the lovely and talented Bert Burles, who uh, handcrafted and did it. So uh, most of these things went back to the source. So uh, hopefully it's somewhere with George Miller in his uh, in his, his uh, collected uh, collected cornucopia.
0: All right, and. I also found this uh, rumor that someone said that the he, they spoke to you and they said that the Vovolni clan are actually a band of killer matriarchs that would banish boys to the desert and then, quote-unquote, milk them when they became of age. How true is this, is, or is Mad Max really just messed up?
1: Uh, uh, the the uh who, uh, for reasons of political correctness that I never went along with, I think were eventually called the Volvolini. Uh The Volvolini were the, the, were the only matriarchal society. And uh, to be fair, I think George and I possibly had various variants in the, in the histories that we gave them. And at one stage, um, we, we were looking at, at uh, Furiosa's backstory and developing back to, obviously, to when the Green Place was a green place before it became the horrible bog and then just the sand dunes. Uh, that the bikey chicks from hell wandered toward the end of their matriarchy. From my point of view, I could well be responsible for, uh, for having said that, that the, uh, the, the, uh, the kite-flying characters that we see out in the bog in the pre-dawn as they leave, the, uh, the characters on stilts, nothing but crow feathers and kites and stilts, still working in what's left of the bog and the quicksand. Well, in my head, yes, the matriarchy needed to, needed to also have a flaw, a fatal flaw, and I think it was that to keep the matriarchy pure in my head, and George is more than happy to tell me this isn't his version of the Bulbalini, that to keep the matriarchy working, uh, you need to keep the naughty boys out of class. And so they were banished to the outer edges And they did become those characters. And, uh, you know, from a purely biological point of view, you would occasionally need to uh, send a couple of tough bikey chicks out into the bog to milk a few boys for the turkey baster if you were going to continue.
0: Well, it does. Well, that sort of stuff does happen down here. And Fury Road is a documentary about Australia. So it would make sense. It would indeed. Yeah. Maybe a little too much for our American viewers, though. Um, I can can only hope, but given that
1: they're giving up on passports and things,
0: it shouldn't be a problem. Probably not. So outside of this, what other upcoming projects do you have in the pipeline?
1: Um, Really, well, I've just finished a film called Flammable Children with uh, Stephen Elliott, director of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and uh, Welcome to Whoop Whoop, among others, uh, which is a 70s-based story of... uh, Growing up in the 70s, when uh, children were indeed flammable, parents went off the rails as they discarded their cardigans and uh, hunted for the 60s that we'd missed down here. So there's that, The Great Walls about to come out, which I was fortunate enough to work on in China. There's another film I did in Cape Town called 24 Hours to Live with uh, Ethan Hawke. Uh, The name is, is in the title, he has 24 Hours to Live. Uh, Apart from that, a Cirque de Martial Arts in China, more of a theatrical extravaganza than a film, and uh, just my fingers crossed that someone will send me something in a script form that I won't have to respond to with a smart-ass comment, which makes me feel good for five minutes, but uh, makes my wife (laughs) ask me why I'm still sitting around the house.
0: And I think the question that all of us want an answer to is, are we going to be getting another Mad Max film?
1: Well, there are indeed. uh, There are a couple of Mad Max films already conceptualized. They're there in embryo, but that turkey baster I spoke about earlier, it's uh, it's in the hands of a doctor, Dr. George, who is a master of his own destiny, deservedly so. So uh, I'm afraid you'll... uh, you'll have to ask the
0: doctor if i can get that opportunity i will but hopefully something does come around but but anyway thank you very very much colin for coming here to talk to us it's been an absolute pleasure and yeah just hope to have you on again if the time if the need arises it'd be great to have you on again and thank you so much for creating a film that so many people love
1: well i'm glad they loved it i hope they loved it as much as we loved uh pouring as much detail and thought, as much longing and belonging and yearning into. So uh, do the same with, uh, with your work, with your writing, and uh, you can build any sort of world. Just uh, think about it long enough.
0: All right, Colin, it was a pleasure to have you on Starship Sofa. Talk later.
4: Oh, Jeremy, 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 what can I say, man, what can I say, do you know what I mean, that's just brilliant, that's actually just brilliant, and I, you know what I mean, I'm going to blow my own trumpet there, it's thanks to Starship Show, J- Jeremy can kind of knock on the doors of that, do you know what I mean, and get these kind of people, do you know, just, oh man, Jeremy, what a, what a great, great questions, do you know what I mean, lovely, I would love to, because I, if, I, if I'm right in thinking, Jeremy came to me a while ago and says, and I don't know if it was just his dad working there, or if Jeremy was working there, like next door or something, you know, to this Colin Gibson. And it was, I would have loved to have just seen Jeremy's face, you know, the first time he he found out that this guy's, you know, working next door, lives next door to where they're working. Jeremy's mouth would have just dropped open, do you know what I mean? Gold dust, content-wise. So, Jeremy, what can I say? And Colin, thank you so much. Lovely to have you on. God, you mean... Thank you so much. There'll be a link on there to Colin Gibson's site as well if you want to pop over and say hello and have a chat as well. So next up is the main fiction, and it's by David John Baker, and it's called Nano America. It was originally published in PS Publishing Catastrophe. David John Baker is a philosopher professor at the University of Michigan, where he studies the conceptual foundations of modern physics. He has defended... The view that space and time are as real as material objects and there is no fundamental difference between your left hand and your right hand. He also teaches a popular course on science fiction and philosophy. His stories have appeared in Escape Pod, Writers of the Future, and the PS Publishing Anthology Catastrophe. Visit him online, and there's a little, there's a whole kind of website address there. Now, this story man. Oh, the story is narrated by a gentleman called George Harab. Now, I hope I'm pronouncing that George, your surname, right there, because I don't want to mess it up because I want George back. George's voice, man. Just. Uh, <laughs> this is what makes Starships so over. Just wait till you hear it. George is a multi instrumental singer songwriter producer composer. George Harab has written and produced six independent CDs and a concert DVD. Published two books, recorded hundreds of episodes of award winning podcast, and countless conferences. Been a TEDx speaker, I watched that George as well. Yes, and has I try to watch you see if I could get your name right and has performed, listen this, listen this, man, for President Clinton. He's travelled four continents promoting critical thinking, science, scepticism through story and song. George is considered one of the preeminent sceptic, science, atheist, geek culture, music icons currently living <laughs> in his apartment. <laughs> George, when you're back on the show, sir. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present...
5: Nano America by David John Baker. The gray falls like snow in New York, piles up in banks by the sidewalks. The city always has been, always will be, the world center. Ad bits drop past my nose, smells like I want a Big Mac, like Chirino's is the place to be tonight, like I can trust Citibank for fair and faithful service. Smells like Russell Walton should be the next mayor of New York City. At least a month old, that one is. Walton was just sworn in. I could spend a lifetime giving in to these little urges funneling through my nostrils. Many do. Or I could take a sniff of guard dust and block them off. But I prefer to feel the feelings and resist them myself. There's too much V-chipping in the world, too much self-censorship, and too little real willpower. I shiver a bit at that thought. As if you, of all people, could trust your will. The next intersection is busy. I step over the curb to evade the crowd. The financial district is dead on its feet, dead without knowing it. People here still dress the way they did in the 2000s, wool coats with collars, solid colored ties. They still act as if their money was worth something. The next block is a long stretch, almost clear of people. Like a racer, I hit a good cruising speed. It's important to walk fast. Saves me hours every week. But I halt here, by the mailbox. What I see on the sidewalk is too wild to pass by. The gray goo piled here is hard at work. There's something growing out of it. A tiny arm with a human infant's stubby fingers. A human infant's arm. High-heeled feet step up to the other end of that nanopile, a woman stopping to gape. I look up at her, one of these finance types, shocked at the sight of the baby arm. She sees me, glances away, walks away with sudden purpose. A human life forming out of the ground. Doesn't compute for you, does it? I can almost hear her own unspoken goodbye, your culture slushling your problem. She saw the hookups below my ears, knew roughly how I live. No one here is stupid. My problem. I get down on my haunches beside the gray. The baby fingers open and close. I see a shoulder now, the beginnings of a forehead. This is happening, a virgin birth on the sidewalk. Passers-by pretend not to see. The whole head emerges, and the newborn cries like any other, eyes squeezed shut. The process quickens. It's a boy. God damn, I say. I pick him up, cradling his head. God damn. At least you'll have a childhood, kid. Something I never experienced. I'm going out, kid. Out where? He says, not looking up. The kid's been around three years now, but physically, he's more like nine. Mentally, too. Doctor's office, I say. Keep the home fires burning. Sure, Trace. Doc's office is on the water, near what used to be the Brooklyn Bridge overpass. The bridge is torn off and road blocked. It goes nowhere now. A bit further down the island, I can see the Manhattan Bridge, where it juts out a short way, cut off well before the opposite shore. The shore I can't even see, thanks to the curtain. I walk to the edge of the water. It looks like a thick mist, the curtain does, rising over the top of the city in a half-sphere. Always a cloudy day here. The other half continues underwater, underground, enclosing all of Manhattan. I pick up a stone and throw it over the water. When it hits the curtain, it vanishes, reduced to atoms by destructive nanites. Manhattan is out of control, flush with nano, too cutting-edge to be safe. The curtain protects the rest of the world from what we have in here, an evil that exists because we need it. All the same, I want to see the world. The waiting room here never takes too long. I'm a priority patient. In the doc's office, I find myself distracted by the sealed dishes of gray goo. Miracle cure of our time. The doc coughs to get my attention. I consider him a friend. Do you remember Sarah Maitland from the State Department? He says. My eyes snap up. Yeah. She likes you, Trace. She wants you to be free to move. Free to leave the island. So do I but he bites his thumbnail with an audible snap we are quite sure now that it was atten who created you he must have had some purpose in mind atten is dead i say the doc nods thank god but we still don't know what he was planning homesick has found artifacts clearly of his making people as well as things sometimes when we combine them they react become dangerous and i might be one of these there are pathways in your brain we still haven't figured out. Nano inside you that we don't understand. We probably never will. Atten was a singular genius, but we've been watching you for five years, he says. Almost your entire life. There's never been any sign. It may be that you're a dead end, that Atten never had the chance to create your trigger. We can't be sure. You'll have to take a risk someday, I say. Or else keep me here until I die. He leans his head on his hands and thinks. I know he respects me. I'm comfortable with that. With the risk, I mean. Then I can go? I'll recommend it. There are only two paths through the curtain and off Manhattan. The railways from Grand Central and Penn Station. This is Penn Station. The kid and I walk hand in hand to the security checkpoint. What's Jersey like, Trace? He says. Dirty, from what I hear. But there are lots of trees.
3: Like in the park?
5: More than that, in some places. And the sun's going to shine straight down on us. I've heard that's amazing. I squeeze his hand. You're lucky to have what you have. Yeah, I know, he says. I'm lucky to be a little boy. We smile at each other for a moment. Then the kid looks down. Do you remember being born, Trace? No. I don't remember because I was a baby, and babies don't have memories, but... You were a man. Why don't you remember?" I think I was asleep when it happened. Security is slow. I show them our cards and my letter from the doctor. The guard puts a clear mask over my mouth and nose. Breathe in. Hold it for ten seconds and then breathe out. The readout shows what they expected, I guess. Another guard inspects my hookups. A dollop of gray is smeared on my palm. It diffuses quickly as the nanites spread over me and into me, "'clearing away contaminants. "'That was weird,' says the kid when we're through. Sec troops in liquid armor pace up and down the tracks, "'getting a close look at each passenger. "'The kid waves at the soldier who looks him over. "'They're still waiting to open the doors to our train. "'An Amtrak train arrives on the other side of the platform. "'Through one of the windows I see a woman. "'Maybe it's just the angle, but she looks truly beautiful. "'She smiles at me. "'I see her take a yellow bag from the luggage rack,' Then a Hispanic guy gets in the way and blocks my view of her. I look around. The homesick troops are up to something. They've been subtle, but now it's obvious. They're clustering around one group of passengers. I take the kid's hand and walk down the platform, trying to put some distance between them and us. One of the troops steps up to the passengers. Sir, please. The four passengers dissolve. Their bodies suddenly burst into a dense cloud. A keening sound, like a rising wind, fills the tunnel. The troops raise their weapons, dousing the cloud with energy. It moves like a living thing through one of the soldiers. When the cloud touches him, it tears his body in half. I lift the kid over the edge of the platform. His little frame fits underneath the train. Get down on the tracks, I tell him, and don't move. The rebel cloud of Nano streaks down the track, destroying one by one the passengers in its path. I can't fit below the platform with the kid, so I just run. I touch a finger to one of my hookups. If there were any gray around, maybe I could use it to protect myself. But this tunnel leads off the island. No free nanites are allowed in. I don't think about what I'm doing, not on a conscious level. Only my reflexes realize that I'm about to die. I see the cloud at the edges of my vision. It circles around without touching me. I stop running. It surrounds me. A thin tentacle of nanites reaches out, stops just short of my face, then, very gently, I feel it touching against my forehead. Through the cloud I see more troops entering the tunnel. The tentacle reacts, then the cloud rises, moving up over my head with increasing speed. It burrows through the tunnel's ceiling, and is gone. Troops in liquid armor give chase, flying after the nano cloud on their thrusters. Emergency lights redden the platform. I feel hands under my arms lifting me, leading me away from the trains, back through security. I hear the loudspeaker. Track seven and eight are being sealed. New Jersey transit passengers. There will be no further trains in or out until noon tomorrow. I swallow, find someone in a uniform. My my son is still on the platform. He'll be brought in if he's alive. I wait on a bench by the checkpoint. There's a display behind me with a model train. I try to pay attention to it, but end up wondering about the kid. I never saw any part of the cloud go below the platform. He's alive, unless something happened that I didn't see. After about an hour, they start letting the Amtrak passengers back into the station. Some have children with them. I stare at each little face. The ones who notice me look away. To them, I'm a stranger. I see the kid's face. He sees mine. That's him, he says. That's Trace. He's with someone. A woman. A woman with a yellow bag. The one I saw through the window of the Amtrak train. She holds his hand and brings him to me. I don't often hug the kid. I'm not that kind of father, or guardian, or whatever I am. But I hold on to him now. The woman smiles at us, and for a moment we three must look like a proper family, bound by ordinary love. I don't usually think such thoughts. The woman holds out her hand to me. "'Trace, it's a pleasure. I'm Becky Gimble. Her southern accent surprises me. I shake her hand. My erection rises the moment I touch her. I slip a hand in my pocket to adjust. "'How did you find the kid?' The kid answers for her. "'The troopers pulled me out from under the train, but they weren't very nice. Becky promised she'd help me find you.' "'I owe you a lot,' I say to Becky. "'Not at all. He's such a little darling. Her smile appears again. I've decided that I like her accent. I'm hungry, I say. How about you, kid? Yeah! I turn to Becky. How about you? She touches a finger to her lips, pretending to deliberate. All right. I soon learn that Becky's every movement is worth admiring. The nervous stage passes quickly. I can tell this is happening to both of us, not just me. The kid looks back and forth at the two of us, a big grin on his face. He can see what's going on. She's from Georgia, out in the country. She's left that culture behind. All of a sudden, it stopped making sense to me. The religion, the whole way of life. When she decided to leave, she knew exactly where to go. You watch SN News, they'll tell you New York City doesn't exist anymore. People turned against nature, started playing God, and then finally got theirs. But I met some travelers passing through town who told me that was bullshit. The city isn't gone, just changed. I knew I had to see it. She can tell I have secrets. I find myself revealing them. How I woke from nothing, an adult with no past, a man created from raw matter, from a pile of gray slush in some lab I can't remember. How the feds found me after Henriatton's coup failed, after Homeland Security killed him and his homemade monsters. How I found the kid, a child of machines, just like me. She asks about the cloud that almost killed me on the train platform. I shrug. An emergent entity. You'll have to explain what that is. There's so much nano littering the city, there's a lot of computing power going to waste. Sometimes it organizes on its own, forms thinking machines. Some of these want to leave the city, so they disguise themselves as people or everyday things. So far, it's never worked. How would we know if it had? I can't answer that. She laughs. It doesn't matter. She has no family or friends in this city, where she planned to stay. The solution is obvious, but we leave it unspoken. We take the kid home, put him to bed. Are you going to bed too, Trace? He says. Becky and I glance at each other. I think we're going to stay up and make friends for a little while first, I say. That's good. He turns off the light himself. I never ask her to stay, but we both know that she will. We both know everything that will happen tonight. I turn the air conditioner on. It's loud. It'll keep the kid from hearing. She's had my attention since I first saw her. Now I turn my attention to specific parts of her. Lips first, neck, then her breasts, and on downward. Nothing has ever been so satisfying. This is crazy, she says. I don't know how anything could happen this quickly, but I love you. I love you, too. I say quickly. I hold her gaze for a while, let her know that I'm telling the truth, which I am. You're the reason I came here, she says. I always knew there was a reason. The night is still deep when I wake beside her. I'm dizzy enough to feel nauseous, afraid to move. My right hand is completely numb, completely without feeling. I lift it in front of my face. Something has transformed my hand. The fingers are no longer flesh, they're silvery metal. Where my nails should be, the fingers narrow, winding together like the strands of a rope to form a metallic cord that goes over the edge of the bed. I lean onto my side, almost retching. The cord that begins at my fingertips ends at the far wall, plugged into the net socket there. My body is receiving data from somewhere. I look over my shoulder at Becky. She's just sleeping, that's all. Peaceful. Could it be her? Could she be the cause of this? Something is bringing my hidden parts to life. I feel suddenly tired, unable to stay awake. I must be certain not to forget this. Something is changing me. When I wake again, my hand is back to normal. It's morning. I don't need to look for Becky. I can feel her weight next to me in the bed. When I turn over, I find her watching me. We kiss. We press against each other make love without saying a word. She gets up, takes a robe from her yellow bag. I'll make you some breakfast. Don't suppose you've got any grits? I flex my right hand. Did you sleep well last night? I ask her. Better than I ever have. Is that a yes? She laughs, surprised at my persistence. (laughs) Yes. We kiss and she goes into the kitchen. I inspect my hand more closely. The only permanent change is a small red sore at the base of my thumb. No pain there. I get up and begin to dress. The responsible thing would be to see the doc immediately, today. But I know what that would mean. My secret functions are manifesting. He'd never let me off the island if he knew. And they'd separate us, Becky and me. They'd assume she'd had something to do with my episode. Could it be true? It could. But the rebel cloud, the emergent entity, touched me yesterday as well. It spared my life after killing many others. Its touch could easily have been the trigger. In the kitchen, Becky is frustrated. Y'all don't keep much food around. We usually just order things up. It only takes a few minutes. I flip up a wall screen and attach the cord to my right hookup. What do you want? She opens a cupboard. Do you have any coffee at least? It's in there. I queue up a meal. The kid's door is closed. The screen says nine o'clock. He's usually a late sleeper. She emerges with a steaming cup. I guess instant means instant around here. We go out to the porch. Do you have many friends here? She says. Not many. I had a dear friend when I grew up. She, we had a fight over a young man. Now I'm pretty careful with people. She leans against my shoulder. Except you, I guess. I trust her, too. I never question this. Everything is so immediate with us, so automatic. I wonder if this was the plan all along. Atten's plan. Maybe you should be more careful with me, I say. I wasn't born, I was built, by a man who tried to take over the country. Henry Atten, that's what he was after? I shrug. It's their best guess. They can't be sure. He killed off most of his colleagues, most of the great nanotech researchers. There's no one left who can understand what he was building. Whatever it was, I'm part of it. A part he never put to use? That's just a guess, too. She watches me carefully for a moment. Have you ever felt like you were under his control? Hmm, What would that feel like? Wouldn't my functions, my tasks be programmed to feel natural? I don't mention last night. Not because it doesn't matter, because it would upset her, and things have been all right so far, and it feels like they should stay all right. Suddenly, I don't want to talk about any of this. I'm sorry, I'm a selling asshole. I- I'm glad you trust me. I kiss her. Becky smiles and talks for a while longer. This is like no place she's ever been. She's so genuine. She has a whole life, a whole past, twenty-five years. It seems foolish now to think she could have caused my hand to change last night. She's a real person, born naturally far from Manhattan, the only place Atten's Nano has ever touched. She's nothing like me. Overhead, metal-colored shapes are flying, emergent beings, giant winged things like gliding manta rays, creatures no one ever intended or understood. The dim sun is occluded by one of them, Becky gapes. I realize I have no notion of how ordinary people live. When we go inside, our breakfast has arrived from the building fabricator, The kid is awake and helping himself to the food. When Becky walks in, he runs up to her and hugs her around the middle. Affection swells in me as I watch them. I clear my throat. throat) How would you two like to take that trip out to Jersey? You were right about the trees, Trace, says the kid. He's plastered to the window of the creaky old train car. Also about the dirt. Becky and I laugh together. She reaches up to my face and touches one of my hookups with her fingers. They're useless out here, I tell her. I want them to stay useless. I want to be like her. Not many of the other passengers have them. There's only one other slusher that I can see. Scary-looking guy, heavily modified. One eye is pure silver, like a metal marble set between his lashes. At the edge of his tear duct, a silver cord extends out from the eye along the surface of his skin. It winds twice around his neck before disappearing into his shirt. We nod to each other and leave it at that. This is our stop. Bayhead. Our hotel isn't far from the water. The beach is about to close when we arrive, so we just check in. Becky goes into the bathroom for a shower. I turn on the TV. Music videos made a comeback a few years ago. This one shows Omar Omar rapping while an American soldier sucks his dick. When Omar comes, it's oil that splatters on the soldier's face. The old Iraqi flag flies in the background. The kid comes in from his bedroom, and I turn off the video. I guess I value his innocence, at least a little. He sits in my lap. I had a bad dream last night, Trace. Yeah? I was a grown-up in the dream. I was looking at little pictures of things that looked like snowflakes. And I could remember some things in the dream I had a real mom and dad. Becky and I are real. You know what I mean, he says. Real parents who conceived me. (laughs) That's a new word for you, conceived. I don't know where I learned it. You must have read it somewhere, I say. I'm pretty sure I didn't. He gets done off my lap. You're a great dad, even if you didn't conceive me. Becky is thoughtful tonight. I was raised to believe that God would grant me a new life after this one. I suppose instead I'll just go away forever. Who knows what's possible with Nano, I say. They could find some way to extend life for as long as you want. For people like you and me? I don't know. We hold each other quietly for a minute. It must be a terrible thing to lose, I say. That belief. She puts a hand on my chest, which I take and hold. But I feel like an adult now, she says. I know there's no one watching me, no caretaker. How did you stop believing in God? Very suddenly, I met a man from up north, an atheist, and for a while I liked him, but what he said about religion made no sense to me. Something changed after he left. Almost overnight, I realized he was right. This is the same man who told you New York was still standing? Yeah. Smart guy. In time we both sleep. For me it's peaceful, until suddenly it isn't. My eyes are open. The sore on my hand is searing with pain. I get up as quietly as I can and go to the bathroom, turn on the light. The sore has grown since yesterday. It's very round, like a little red half-sphere. I press my thumbnail against it, and instead of intensifying the pain, this partly eases it. I press the nail in harder. The skin breaks a little, showing some blood but I keep it up with the sick focus one forms when picking at something. More blood, then the pain has gone entirely. I've broken the sore open. I lift my thumb away and see something glistening. Under the skin, I see metal. Out of the hollow in my hand, a tiny object rises, a shining sphere like a polished ball bearing. It's levitating in the air. A moment ago, this thing was inside me. More quickly than I can follow, it flies out the door. I go to the living room, to the window there, and see a tiny hole in the glass. The metal ball has escaped. I put a band-aid over my new wound and go back to bed. Now Becky's story is fresh in my mind. She changed quickly, lost her religion and her values just before coming north. A scenario occurs to me. A young man from New York goes south for some reason he can't explain. Somehow he's come across a bit of Atten's nano He's drawn to a girl, perhaps he kisses her, passes something on, and that something changes her, kills off her old beliefs, drives her to Manhattan, where I await. Would I have loved the woman she was born to be? Probably not. Probably what's happened, Atten's design or not, has given me the only chance I'll ever have to love someone like her. We spend the next day at the beach. It's crowded there, but pleasant. Becky doesn't ask about my hand and I don't volunteer anything. She looks sexy in the water. When we get back to the hotel, the kid wants ice cream. Becky takes him out for a cone. After they leave, I peel off the band-aid. The hollow wound is gone. I'll never hurt you, Trace. The voice comes from behind me. I see no one in the mirror, but when I turn around, he's there. The famous face of Henry Atten regards me. It's a hallucination. You're dead, I say. If I can act on the world, if my memory still persists somewhere, am I dead? You have no right to use me. Atten points at me. What gives you the right to use your arm? I claim that same right over you and all my creations. Anything I can control is a part of me. What about Becky? The two of you are working together. Like two cells side by side within me. It's strange. I understood this last night on some level, and I've suspected it since the beginning. Then I did nothing, but hearing the truth from him now, I have to try to fight. I take a piece of complimentary hotel paper, write a note with a complimentary pen. Can't take too long. I'm surprised they're not back already with their ice cream. I run all the way to the train station, all the way to the platform. I'll buy a ticket on the train. I have to get back under the curtain, where I can't harm the outside world. Atten speaks again, though this time I can't see him. It's best if you stop thinking of yourself as a person. A person is an independent will. A soul that acts on its own. Fuck off, Atten. Soon I'll be under the curtain, safe and contained. Maybe I can see Becky and the kid again if we all make it back. Becky, that was true love but some things are too terrible to risk, even so. I feel a hand on my shoulder. Come this way, Trace. A different voice, not Atten's. What? Come with me. I'm guided into the station, into a room that's quiet and dark. Only now do I see the man who led me here. It's the slusher from the train, the man with one silver eye. Tell me what's happening to you, he says. Who are you? I'm a federal agent. He shows me some kind of badge. Your shadow. We detected what happened last night, the release of Atten's probe. I hear Atten's voice like a thought of my own. But they couldn't stop it. They don't know how to resist me. The woman you're traveling with, says the agent, we think she's causing the change in you. They'll kill her, Trace. You were on your way to New York to get back under the curtain, weren't you? There's no need for that. We have a safe room prepared here in Bayhead. I need to bring you there. I can give you the power to destroy this man. The agent sees my hesitation. If you don't come willingly, I'll have to force you. Believe me, I can. He will kill the woman and the child, if he hasn't already. What I do next feels like the right thing. I don't know if it makes sense to ask whether the act comes from my will or Atten's, but I won't hide behind him. It's on my head. I turn to the silver-eyed man. The fingers of my right hand link together and lengthen, becoming something metallic and sickle-shaped, something sharp. The silver-eyed man reacts. His own hands change quickly, becoming talons of solid black material. He's faster than me. His claws are descending on both sides of my neck. Then the movement stops, his wrists snapping back. From thin air, solid cords have appeared, winding around his limbs. For a moment at least, he's bound. I strike up through his stomach and chest. Some of the metal from my sickle hand slides off and burrows into him, moving through his body like a quick plague. It devours his flesh as I watch. My enemy, if he deserved the name, is dead. How'd that work? I say aloud. Atten is with me again, a visible illusion. The whole time he was speaking, you were exhaling nano of my design. That's where the cords came from. But to finish him, you had to act. You did well. I'm crying. (laughs) What do you want? I once had motives like yours, but you shouldn't think of me that way now. Can the cell understand the whole person's reasons? Ask instead what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring new things into this world. The embryo can't stay locked in the egg, not forever. The curtain will fall. Will you live again? In in a body, I mean? Atten touches his chin, musing on this. I haven't decided. The old flesh is outmoded, but it has a certain symbolic strength. There is a body alive now that may grow into me if I choose. I think of the kid's dream. Not him. You're no fool, Trace. Anger seems like the wrong reaction to the force he represents. I give expression to my fear. Please don't take him away from me. It won't be like that. ''Humans change with time. Children grow. This will be no different. Just like your life from the inside was no different from his.'' Atten points to the body of the silver-eyed man. ''Maybe it's true. I pound the floor and cry. ''Go find Becky and the kid,'' he says. ''It's important you do this. I've neutralized the government agents assigned to them, but more will come. You must follow my instructions.'' For their sake, I say. I will. Becky is waiting outside the door of the hotel. She runs to me. I read your note, but I knew you'd be back. She looks up at me, chin on my chest. Don't try to tell me you were lying about Atten. I believed it all. It doesn't make we have less real, I say. I know. We kiss and kiss. I'll get the kid, I say. Atten speaks to me rarely now. I don't need his voice to know his will. We mostly keep to our retreat in the Pennsylvania hills off Route 285. But time is passing. Soon we'll be called upon. There are eight of us here. Four couples, all in love. The kind of love most people spend a lifetime lacking. It's hard not to be content with our lot. The kid is the only child here. I've stopped watching him for signs of Aten. I think he has some grasp on what's happening. At least, he's worried. He asked me yesterday what kind of man he'd grow up to be, whether I'd still be his dad if he changed. I told him I wouldn't care. That's not how love works.
4: Don't forget, copyright is David John Bakers and David, what can I say? Thank you so much. And George. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Oh, gentlemen, both of you, sir. Can we get you back on the shows? So that would be fantastic. Now, I haven't mentioned it yet, but Kickstarter is still going. Everyone without walls. And it's just gaining and gaining and gaining. (laughs) We are not that far now. Well, we're still a kind of fair, you know. We can kind of throw a stone in virtual money at the stretch goal. We've also getting Ken Liu on board as well with a marvelous, monumental story that hasn't been published anywhere online. It was published in a, in a science fiction a Chinese fanzine, Zine, shall I say? I think in two thousand and fourteen, which is just a beautiful story as well. Like I say, we've got lavish. Shidar, Lavi Tidar on there as well. And we're not that far from the stretch goal of 5,000, which would mean we're we'll bringing five new writers. So, listen, honestly, you know, time now, let's just do, I've I'm, got I'm, I'm on the page there now. Time is, I'm just refreshing that. We have 17 days to go. Now that might sound uh, that sounded dead, George. We had we've got 17 days to go, and it might sound a while, but you know, just keep it up. Don't don't mess it up. You know what I mean? Come on, let's get this. Be lovely to get to the 5,000. Just um, you know, I know who I want to kind of ask and pick. That's the thing I want to kind of get them on, and so that I can have that kind of book in my hand. That would be fantastic. So please. Listen, man. Come on, get this mother of a Kickstarter away. That'll be fantastic. Please, 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 please. Right then, you know what's coming, don't you? It's Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news, Jim. Sir, greetings and geomorphic palliations, my indubitably ultra
6: jocular listeners, and welcome to this February two thousand and seventeen science news update. I'm your host for this. Dissolutely meretricious science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Wow, this year is running away from me already. What was it that Gertrude mark said? Time flies like an arrow, but fruit flies like a banana. Huh, let that sink in for a while. Anyway, let's start with a bit of callback from my ravings of last month's podcast, Here is a new potential treatment for Alzheimer's syndrome, which is not a drug or a nutraceutical. While multiple drugs have failed now, as I discussed last month, hope for new treatments still remain. Dr. Gerhard Leinenga, out of Australia's University of Queensland, has proposed a groundbreaking solution for reversing Alzheimer's dementia. One that suggests pharmaceutical drugs might not even be the answer at all. His article was just published in the journal Science Translational Medicine, and the group has harnessed scanning ultrasound technology to repeatedly open the blood-brain barrier, clearing amyloid beta plaques, and restoring memory function. He did this in mouse models, while the removal of the beta amyloid plaques, it did reverse the negative cognitive effects, and there were no drugs used at all. Linenga designed three memory tests to gauge the Uh, efficiency of scanning ultrasound and reversing the beta amyloid plaques and restoring memory. He first placed the mice in a rotating area with a grid. When the mice enter one zone of the round arena, they get a small electric shock. To avoid this area in a rotating arena, they have to rely on cues outside of the maze by establishing where the shock zone lies in relation to the room. Another test involved something called a Y-maze, which is commonly used in tests of spatial memory. And a third test was something called a novel object test, where the mouse first explores two identical objects, and then after an interval, a retention period, one of the objects is replaced by an object the mouse has never seen before. Because mice are curious creatures, they should explore the novel object more if they remember that they have already seen the familiar object. Linenga tested the mice prior to ultrasound treatment and then treated them five separate times over six weeks before subjecting the mice to the memory tests again. The researchers saw restored spatial and recognition memory results in the scanning ultrasound-treated mice. The control or sham-treated mice did not perform as well in the second set of memory tests in comparison to the treated mice with their performance being similar to wild-type mice without the Alzheimer's-causing gene. Linengus said, quote, seeing that there were beneficial effects of the treatment on various aspects of the pathology that we were testing, that was very encouraging. As we looked at different aspects, such as behavior, pathology, and the neuronal cells, it was interesting to find that there were effects on all of these, unquote. To investigate the mechanism causing beta-amyloid plaque reduction, Lininga conducted additional testing and found that microglial activation induced the clearance by enabling microglial lysosomes to internalize the amyloid beta and destroy it. Due to his success on the mice, Lininga is now trying to apply the technique to sheep, since their skulls are similar in thickness to human skulls. The larger sheep brain is also close in size and shape to human brains as well. Having a similar model is important for developing ultrasound technology because the physics can differ in a mouse versus a human due to the difficulty of transmitting through a thicker human skull. Although, frankly, I don't know where you're going to get sheep with Alzheimer's disease. Linenga finishes with, quote, We're also looking at other types of brain pathology to see whether... Ultrasound can cause an improvement in some of these other pathologies where there are protein aggregates in the brain. Unquote. I suspect that this new ultrasound treatment will still have to be approved by the FDA, which I guess that President Trump has demanded go through a process of deregulation. I was thrilled with that, actually. I mean, deregulation means faster approval of drugs and treatments, right? No, not really. Government seriously sucks sometimes. According to government insiders, Trump's attempt to actually create a fast track for drugs while still protecting the public is doomed to failure because even with federal guidelines removed, the FDA will simply turn to internal guidelines and simply do what they were doing before. In fact... Most of the Washington insiders that I've heard have said that deregulation will probably slow down the pipeline even more as internecine struggles are generated at the FDA. Oh, joy. Okay, well, how about another short Alzheimer's story? This is kind of a cool one. It's been estimated that three out of five people with Alzheimer's wander and get lost, usually beginning in the early stages of the disease, leaving them, well, vulnerable to injury. It's been suspected for a long time that, along with memory deficiencies, the disease affects the navigational centers of the brain as well. Now investigators from Columbia University have recently discovered that the spatial disorientation that leads to wandering in many Alzheimer's patients is caused by the accumulation of the tau protein in the navigational nerve cells within the brain. These new findings in mice, which were just published online in the journal Neuron in an article entitled, quote, Tau pathology induces excitatory neuron loss, grid cell dysfunction, and spatial memory deficits reminiscent of early Alzheimer's disease. Unquote. There is hope that this new understanding could lead to early diagnostic tests for Alzheimer's and highlight novel targets for treating this common and troubling symptom. Dr. Karen Duff, leader of the team, hypothesized that Alzheimer patients' problems might originate in an area of the brain known as the entorhinal cortex. The entorhinal cortex plays a key role in memory and navigation and is among the first brain structures affected by that buildup of neurofibrillary tangles that are largely composed of tau, which is the hallmark of the Alzheimer's disease. Duff says, quote, Until now, no one has been able to show how tau pathology might lead to navigational difficulties, unquote. Duff examined the excitatory grid cells, a type of nerve cell in the entorhinal cortex that fires in response to movement through space they create an internal map of a person's environment. Her group made electrophysiological recordings of the grid cells of older mice, including mice engineered to express tau in the entorhinal cortex, what her group called EC tau mice. And they also looked at normal controls, as they all navigated different environments. Spatial cognitive tasks revealed that the EC tau mice performed significantly worse compared to the controls, suggesting that the tau protein alters grid cell function and contributes to spatial learning and memory deficits. Intensive analysis of the mouse brains under the microscope revealed that only the excitatory cells, but not the inhibitory cells, were killed or compromised by the pathological tau protein, which probably resulted in the grid cells firing less. Duff said, quote, It appears that tau pathology spared the inhibitory cells, disturbing the balance between excitatory and inhibitory cells and misaligning the animal's grid fields. Unquote. The result of this new study raises the possibility that spatial disorientation could be treated by correcting the imbalance through transcranial stimulation, deep brain stimulation, or even light based therapy. Duff finishes with quote, "In addition to suggesting novel treatments, our findings suggest that it may be possible to develop navigation-based cognitive tests for diagnosing Alzheimer's disease in its initial stages, and if we can diagnose the treatment early, we can start to give therapeutics earlier when they may have greater impact. Unquote. All right, let's talk about astrophysics as far from biology as you would think, right? Something completely different, as John Cleese would say. Or is it? Oh, I can hear the painful brain rackings now. What the heck is Campanella talking about now? Okay. How is this for a title of an article from the journal Physical Review last month? Parking Garage Structures in Nuclear Astrophysics and Cellular Biophysics. From pine cones demonstrating Fibonacci's golden ratio to the fractal designs found in ferns, geometrical patterns regularly crop up through nature. While you can see these examples walking through a local park, matching patterns are also found much further away and on much smaller scales. Now collaborating biophysicists and nuclear astrophysicists have identified self-assembling structures in both, get this, Neutron stars and the endoplasmic reticulum of a cell differing in density by 14 orders of magnitude but determined by similar geometrical constraints. These findings may create new research models, with neutron stars studied under a microscope and astrophysics simulations used in cell biology. The rough endoplasmic reticulum, by the way, is a sac-like structure found next to the nucleus in cells. It helps to ensure the correct translation and folding of newly made proteins. At any rate, serendipity allowed the two different research disciplines to make the connection between the structure similarities. Doctors Matt Kaplan, astrophysicist from Indiana University, and biophysicist Greg Huber, have collaborated on some work that is simply amazing in terms of differences in measurement scales. Kaplan said, quote, We got lucky. One of my simulations of neutron stars was published in the American Physical Society newsletter, and Greg Huber recognized it as something that looked similar to his own work on the endoplasmic reticulum morphology. After that, we had to collaborate. It was too striking a resemblance not to. Unquote. This collaboration was only possible after overcoming a terminology language barrier. Kaplan explains it this way. He says, quote, we have completely different names for completely different things. So learning the language of biophysics was key. Our main challenge was building a Rosetta Stone that both collaborating teams could use that would be a useful reference in future research, unquote. Within a neutron star's crust is a dense mixture of protons and neutrons and electrons caught between long-range repulsive forces and shorter-range attractive forces. The competition between these forces causes matter to split into dense regions divided by voids with structures called nuclear pasta. I love that, nuclear pasta. The nuclear pasta resembles sheets used when baking lasagna. These sheets are joined by spiral-shaped ramp-like junctions, similar to the paths connecting the floors of a multi-story parking garage. Huber recognized in this configuration a striking likeness to membrane folds found in the endoplasmic reticulum that increase the surface area for ribosome factories. To find out if the resemblance between these structures is due to self-assembly, the team simulated the motion of randomly distributed protons and neutrons to calculate how they move and the shapes they form, visualizing the structures. They found that lots of their systems spontaneously self assembled to form flat sheets connected by these helical ramps, and the geometry was very similar to that observed in the endoplasmic reticulum. Kaplan finishes his statement with quote, We are hoping to adapt a PASTA model to study biological systems. It may be difficult for biophysicists to simulate and study membranes looking at exact microscopic interactions. But our model is somewhat simpler, and we can study things like self assembly much easier. Conversely, nuclear PASTA can't be produced on Earth and studied experimentally. To have their work as a reference as an idea of what to look for and directions to go in is going to be incredibly helpful. Next story, poop. When my kids were younger, we read a book together called All Animals Poop. Or was it Everybody Poops? Well, whatever. It's true. Every organism on this earth needs to get rid of waste that comes from undigestible foodstuffs. Anybody who's a gardener can tell you that there is a serious difference between the feces of herbivores and carnivores. There's a reason that cow feces, and not tiger feces, are used in gardens. That is besides the obvious problem with the collection of the tiger feces. Not something anybody would pay me enough to do. Anyway, the differences between the qualities of meat-eater feces and those of a herbivore are a bit more, well, than skin-deep, so to speak. As we all know, flies and many other insects show an inordinate fondness for feces, They oviposit there and occasionally visit animal excrement to dine in. As it turns out, though, not all poop is created equal, and flies are rather discerning in their choice of their, well, their fecal targets. While some piles of feces are highly attractive, hard to believe I know, the fragrant bouquet of displeasing targets is met with extreme prejudice. In a recent paper in Current Biology, Dr. Susan Monsorian and her colleagues from the University of Lund in Sweden show why. Large mammals can be partitioned in lots of different ways, and one of the larger divisions concerns their diet and the traits that go with it. And Beyond the obvious differences between carnivores and herbivores, these animals also differ in length and the structure of their guts. Deeper still, they maintain dramatically different microbiomes... We always come back to microbiomes, don't we? Well, dramatically different microbiomes that aid in digestion. And it is this latter difference, according to Monsorian and her colleagues, that seems to matter most to the flies. When the research team offered houseflies, a choice between carnivore and herbivore feces for egg laying, they found marked differences. While the flies were attracted or indifferent to herbivore feces, they were positively repulsed by carnivore waste. Moreover, their aversion disappeared when the assays were repeated with the flies lacking a specific type of olfactory neuron, making it clear that their choice was caused by odor preference. To determine why one animal's waste smelled better than the other, the team subjected the fecal samples to detailed chemical analyses, Phenol, in particular, was abundant in the carnivore feces, but pretty much entirely absent from the excrement of the herbivores. More important, the team determined that this chemical alone was sufficient to drive fly behaviors. When normally acceptable with giraffe feces, by the way, and don't ask me where they got giraffe feces, was spiked with phenol, the flies turned up their noses and laid their eggs elsewhere. And when the flies were forced to lay eggs on phenol-laced food, they laid nearly five times fewer eggs. But why would flies avoid the chemical phenol? To determine this, the team analyzed the bacteria found in herbivore and carnivore guts. The most interesting differences, it turned out, were for bacterial species that were pathogenic for insects. And these bacterial species not coincidentally make... Phenol! Ta-da! And it's not just flies that can detect this difference. When the team offered dung beetles, the poop experts of the insect world, a choice between herbivore and carnivore feces, they almost always chose the herbivore. Thus the aversion to phenol seems to appear to be widespread. Monsorian says, quote, The neatest aspects of these results are the diverse links between chemical ecology, neurobiology, and animal behavior. But these same aspects also highlight the loose threads that offer some promising avenues for future research. Among these, why are fruit flies so discriminating among feces when they spend most of their time on fruit? How reliable a cue is phenol for the risk of the fly disease? And does phenol concentration scale with the true risk for the flies to get sick? Unquote. Onward and upward. Here's a story from the Westworld Blade Runner scary part of our universe. Dr. Floyd Romasburg and his colleagues at Scripps Research Institute report the development of the first sable semi synthetic organism. Building on their 2004 study in which they synthesized a DNA base pair, they created a new bacterium that uses the four natural bases, A, T, C, and G, but also employs a pair of synthetic bases, which they call X and Y in its genetic code. Ramesberg showed that his single-celled organism can hold on indefinitely to the synthetic base pairs as it divides. His paper entitled, A Semi-Synthetic Organism Engineered for the Stable Expansion of the Genetic Alphabet, was just published online this month ahead of print in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Romesberg said, quote, we made this semi-synthetic organism far more lifelike, unquote. When Romesberg first announced the development of his organism three years ago, he showed that the modified E. coli bacteria could hold the synthetic base pair in their genetic code. What these E. coli couldn't do, however, was keep the base pair in their code indefinitely as they divided. The X-Y base pair was dropped over time, limiting the ways the organism could use the additional information possessed in its DNA. Robesberg says on this topic, quote, Your genome has to be stable for the scale of your lifetime. If the semi-synthetic organism is going to be really an organism, it has to be able to stably maintain that information. Our first information was like a baby, but now it's ready for real life, unquote. Okay, does this guy sound just plain scary to me? And straight out of central casting for the mad scientist, I can almost hear him cackling to himself and saying, I go, bring me the brain. Romasburg's group had to change a couple of things to get his semi-artificial bugger to grow more than a couple of generations. First, they had to change a membrane transporter that allows nucleotides to be transported across the cell membrane. The first one they used didn't transport their new novel bases very well. The researchers discovered a modification to the transporter, and that alleviated the problem, making it much easier for the organism to grow and divide while holding on to X and Y. Then the researchers optimized their previous version of the Y base. The new Y base is a chemically different molecule that can be better recognized by the enzymes that synthesize DNA molecules during DNA replication. This made it easier for cells to copy the synthetic base pair. Finally, the researchers set up a spell check system for the organism using CRISPR-Cas9 an increasingly popular tool in human genome editing experiments, which I've mentioned quite a few times on the podcast previously, I think. Scary Dr. Romesberg says, We now get the light of life to stay on. That suggests that all of life's processes can be subject to manipulation. We will overcome all obstacles to show that every aspect of life processes can be controlled. Uh, Uh-huh. He went on to scream, It's alive! It's alive! Several times before slinking back into his laboratory. Sorry, I got carried away there. Next story. This was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Academy in January, and it suggests that you can still function quite well without a brain, although I suspect that the U.S. Congress proved that a long time ago. Dr. David Vogel of Paul Sabatier University in France studies, well, slime molds. And yes, it's so hard to resist not making another comparison to Congress. Slime molds ooze around at a maximum speed of about four centimeters an hour. A slime mold with an appetite can accomplish just about anything. Solve mazes, escape traps, and it can even mimic complex networks. Vogel recently discovered another remarkable ability that this brainless protist possesses. Physarum polycephalum, a giant single-celled slime mole, can learn new behavior and then teach its newfound knowledge by fusing with what they call naive slimes. The researchers reported this primitive form of learning, which they are calling habituation. Vogel says, quote, studying a unicellular organism is really interesting because it's easier to understand the underlying process allowing a behavior to emerge i always enjoy showing that a simple organism is able to have complex behavior inhabiting rotting logs and decaying leaves polycephalum can be as small as the microbes it feasts on Work can extend to be as large as several meters in multiple directions. It can separate and recombine, all the while remaining as one, one multinucleated mass called a plasmodium. As a plasmodium, the slime mold is all about finding efficient routes to food. Why am I reminded of the blob? That's probably where the people who made the blob got the idea. I suspect. Anyway, by Exploiting this drive to eat, the researchers designed an experiment to test the slime's wit. They created a small bridge covered in harmless table salt, which usually repulses slime molds. Eventually, the slime learned that the bridge was safe to cross, so it could eat its meal on the other side. Next, the team brought in new naive slime molds for their first encounter with the salty bridge. When testing the new group with the habituated group, fusion naturally commenced, and knowledge began to spread. It only took a single habituated slime to teach one or more naive slimes that the salt bridge was safe to cross. Even more surprising, the naive slime's tendrils would reach for the food before the habituated counterpart did. The longer the habituated and naive slimes were fused, the more habituated the naive slimes became after separation. Vogel suggested that this collective knowledge is important of the survival of individual or separated slimes, but what exactly is getting transferred or retained as information? The team hypothesizes that when slime molds repeatedly habituate to a repulsive stimulus, new molecules form in the cell that allow them to ignore the stimulus The team hypothesizes that when slime molds repeatedly habituate to a repulsive stimulus, new molecules form in the cell that allow them to ignore the stimulus. Unhabituated slime molds could then learn by obtaining these molecules. Alright, final story of the night. Several listeners have complained because I haven't had a quote-unquote sexy story in a while, I find these emails both disturbing and intriguing, but I will bow to the public demand and give you what you want, ladies and germs. Let's talk about mammary glands. How do they evolve in mammals? We do not see them in reptiles that preceded mammals, or in amphibians that preceded them, or even in the birds that survived the big reptiles. So where did the milk-producing apparatus come from? In the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences last month, researchers from the lab of Dr. Dennis Duboul at the University of Geneva reported discovering a new network of genes and enhancers responsible for coordinating the formation of mammary glands in mammals. Interestingly, this regulatory network functions by hijacking existing limb development processes. Yes, if evolution had gone slightly askew and those genes expressed in a slightly different way, breasts would have been closer in structure to tentacles on females. That would certainly have changed everybody's perspective of date night. At any rate, the genes involved in this evolution are called the Hox genes. These genes were originally discovered in fruit flies, and they're necessary for proper body growth and partitioning. The Hox genes are a subset of a larger group called homeotic genes, which control embryonic development and patterning. Hox genes have been shown to specifically regulate limb, head, thoracic, abdomen, and mammary gland formation. To better understand how some of these body structures evolved, NUBU screened for Hox genes activating sequences in the genome. One of the enhancer sequences controlling the Hox genes that he found with his group was called MBRE. And MBRE is responsible for activating HOXD9, a gene required for mammary gland development. Interestingly, however, that regulatory sequence, MBRE, is conserved only in placental and marsupial mammals and missing in any egg-laying mammals, such as the platypus, which does not nurse. But the MBRE... Regulatory network is found to function in all tissues, indicating that the network was present prior to mammary gland evolution. The researchers propose that the Hox-D gene regulation in mammary glands evolved by co-opting existing regulatory networks in other body structures. Based on that, here is your word of the week. Exaptation. You've all heard of adaptation. You know how Organisms adapt to their environment based on the traits they develop over time to survive and reproduce. This is the basis for Darwin's origin of species. So that is adaptation. Exaptation is when a gene or a trait like the MBRE and the Hox genes are already present but are being used for something else entirely. When the need arises to co-opt them for another function entirely. In this case, these Hox genes along with the regulatory network, were accepted for use in mammary gland evolution. As Duble put it so well in the paper, quote, Mammary buds evolved by hijacking a pre-existing regulatory landscape that was already at work in structures such as limbs or the intestinal tract. The regulatory system was there long before the emergence of mammals, unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Pray for the United States Food and Drug Administration. They need it. Stay away from carnivore poop. Keep washing the skies. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
4: Thank you, Jim. What a store! Ah, uh, So that is today's show. Well, I do hope you've enjoyed it. And, you know, what can I say? You just kind of big thank you to Jeremy for pulling that off. You know what I mean? Jeremy, thank you so much for just being able to kind of pull that together. You know what I mean? It would have been a little bit stressful for him as well, I, I would have thought. so. But Jeremy, what can I say? Big thank you. It's not that often you get an Oscar winning Gentlemen, on or, or person should I say on on the show, and Colin Gibson probably is our first one. So, Colin, thank you so much for that. Big thank you to David John Baker there with his Nano America, and George Harab. George. Oh, yes, gentlemen, that was just a great fit. Well done again, Jeremy. Well done, and and Ralph as well, who's is in the background working tirelessly. Ralph Ambrose, thank you so much, Jim. What can I say, lad? Listen, listen. What can I say? Just, can you tell, I was, um, I'm was i quite proud of this show. Do you know what I mean? It all come together and it was lovely to be quite honest. It's been, been a lot of work in the background for a lot of while to get this done. And like I say, I keep on blurting on about it, but you know what I mean? Dude, honestly, Fiverr gets you the actual copy on digital. You know what I mean? You can just kind of discover these new writers. A little bit more. A little bit more. get you a little bit more. Oh, <laughs> well, is that the wife calling? <laughs> Don't forget the dogs. Take the dogs out. <laughs> Until next week, just like to say, goodnight from me.
3: Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. Best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through